talking. Good morning, everybody. Mark Rogers here. It's good to be here another morning into the week of this one here. Hey, I got some exciting things to do. I study and I pray about what to do in the morning here. And a thought came to me that uh, quite different. And those of you that know me know that I like to change things up real. And so today I'd like to talk about the New York City revival of 1857. And so it's We've been going through Nehemiah here, and in going through Nehemiah, it's been something where this this Nehemiah has been a man of prayer, and he had and the Lord has come through and and stirred the people up, if you will, and in stirring the people up, it's used a revival, and and so I would love to look at this New York City revival of 1857. I. Let's look at this revival here of 1857. But before that, I do want to read the um, I want to read the first three verses of Nehemiah 9, just to get the setting of what is going on here. It says on Nehemiah 9, first three verses, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth in and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God." A lot of stuff going on there, a lot of action because they weren't doing it here just a few years ago or just a year ago, and now things have really, really changed. And so this is what the Word of God and separating from evil does. And and you can look there that they spent a fourth of the day. You know, it's interesting to see they, they the fourth of the day, another fourth they confessed. They're so listening to the Scriptures for one-fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshiped their Lord, their God. You know we are we are hacked today by by shortness and lack of meditation. My mother-in-law used to say it. We've lost the art of meditation. That's a true story, and it's even gotten worse. Where we now are on our cell phones and we're skimming and sliding, and the thought of actually having that time of meditation that you see here, where for three hours, four hours, five hours, they're they're sitting there listening to the Word of God and then meditating. That's a big thing. So. Let's move on into uh, the, the, the book. I'd like to read this book here. Uh, this is a particular chapter. I mean, this is called Sounding Forth the Trumpet. And this is from, this is the third book in a series that you can f- find. It was written in 1960. Uh, it's called Sounding Forth the Trumpet. And the third, this is the third book in the trilogy. Um, I don't know of any other book that beyond it. And it's covering up to 1860 here in the United States. And the authors are bringing out how they are, it is something that they are, um, there's revivals going on. And so I thought I'd take the opportunity to read several pages here. I've got this set up on the computer. If you're watching on the, on the screen, while you'll see me read it, whether you can read it or not is another thing, but I'd like to go through it because it is quite encouraging to see a man in New York City that sprung up a revival at, at that time. And so I'd like to get into that right now. As always, drop comments in on the side. Appreciate those as well uh, to, to help along the way. Uh, so let's get right into um, the book here. Uh, the, the Sounding Forth the Trumpet, New York City Revival of 1857. This is chapter 39, Revival. 
The tall man knelt on the floor, listening to the silence. Far below, he could hear the muffled sounds of the city, but here in the in the third floor meeting room, there was only the slow tick-tock of the wall clock. Its hand stood at 12.14, and a shaft of noonday was through the south window. A moat of dust hung suspended. Jeremiah Lamphere watched it, for at that moment, the tiny particular particle defined him, neither moving up nor down, entirely at the mercy of any shaft of air, but there was no movement, no change, visible or invisible. Jeremiah reflected on what had brought him to this place of this time, kneeling in this empty, still room. He had been born 49 years before in a little town on the Hudson River called Coxsackie, above about 20 miles south of Albany. For all his growing up years, he had watched the steamships and barges pass by on the river until it seemed that the whole world and life were passing him by. When he was 31 years old, he could stand it no longer and decided to seek his fortune downriver in New York City, the largest metropolis on this side of the world. He entered the mercantile business, and in 1842, an extraordinary thing happened to him. At age 33, Jeremiah Lanphier discovered that Christ was real and that he had died on the cross in order that all Jeremiah's sins might be forgiven. This dumbfounded revelation was followed by action. Jeremiah gave his life to him and started to live under new management, as a businessman might put it. Looking for a going, a going church to join in downtown New York, he eventually settled into the Brick Presbyterian Church. Under its auspices, he spent more and more of his free time working as a lay evangelist, passing out tracts, inviting people to church, and telling anyone who would listen about the marvelous Savior he had encountered. One observer later described him as having a pleasant face, an affectionate manner, and an indomitable energy and perseverance. A welcome guest in any house, shrewd and endowed with much tact and common sense. New York in 1857 was changing as rapidly as the rest of America. As the downtown districts become more and more industrialized, most of its citizenry who could afford to move so did so, relocating further uptown where the cross streets were numbered in the 50s and 60s. Increasingly, their former dwellings were taken by newly arrived immigrants who could not yet speak English and could only get the most menial jobs. The business offices, of course, remained downtown where the businesses was, and so New York produced the first commuters, men who would walk or ride horse-drawn trolleys to and from each day. As the membership of the downtown churches dwindled, a number of them, including the Brick Presbyterian Church, followed their congregations uptown. But one, the old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street, did not. The board of that church decided to see if they could draw a new congregation from among the immigrants now living around their church. To reach them, they hired a full-time lay evangelist, that tall, energetic fellow from Brick Presbyterian, Jeremiah Lamphere. His chief assignment was to personally call on anyone who lived within walking distance and was not already attending a church. To each, he would give a pamphlet describing the church and its services, a Bible, if they did not possess one, and an invitation to join them next Sunday. It was a daunting task, but it was just the sort of work Jeremiah loved. And commencing on July 1, he was even, he was, 
even going to be paid for it. As the weeks of summer passed and few responded to his invitations, he must have been tempted to become disheartened, but Jeremiah was a man of prayer. He knew God was with him in this venture, and he prayed for the grace to persevere. He did miss having a chance to pray with others and having his spiritual energy recharged in the midst of a busy day. And one, and he wondered if the businesses, businessmen hurrying here and there ever wish that they could have a quiet moment with their creator. One day as I was walking along the streets, he recorded in his journal, the idea was suggested to my mind that an hour of prayer from 12 o'clock would be beneficial to businessmen who usually in great numbers take that hour for rest and refreshment. The more Jeremiah thought about it, the more enthusiastic he became. I'm going to go ahead and readjust my book reading here. I'm going to turn the page. The idea was to have singing, prayer, exhortation, relation of religious experience as the case might be, but none should be required to stay the whole hour. That all should come and go as their engagements would allow or require or their inclinations dictate. A weekly prayer service. The meeting would be for businessmen, but workmen of all trades would be welcome. And because businessmen's lives ran on tight schedules, if they could drop in for only five or 10 minutes, fine. People could pray aloud if they felt so led, they could request the prayers of others for a personal concern, or they could share a word of testimony. He printed up and passed out handbills telling where and when the first businessman's prayer meeting would take place. At noon, September 23, to run one hour in the North Dutch Church's third floor meeting room on Fulton Street. This meeting, the handbill said, is intended to give, more, to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call on God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. But now, as the wall clock struck the half hour, it looked as if no one was coming. The mode of dust was at the edge of the sunbeam now, and that was because the sun had moved, not the air. Anyone who had ever started a new project and wondered if anyone else would be interested in joining the doubts that must have assailed Jeremiah as he knelt there in the stillness. But he did not get up brush off his trousers and with a sigh go to lunch. God had called him to do this. And so he stayed in communion with his maker, trusting and obeying and waiting. The mode of dust lifted. Downstairs, someone had opened a door. There was a creak in the stairs. A man came up from the room, saw Jeremiah and without a word knelt beside him. Another came and another. By one o'clock, there was six. The following week, there was 20. The week after, there was 40. And they're asked if they, they could start meeting every day. A week was too long to go without that blessed communion. By October 8, there were so many men that they, couldn't, they had to move down to the larger meeting room on the second floor. Jeremiah rejoiced. This is a spirit of reconstruction to the service of Christ, he wrote, and a manifest desire to live near his cross. By the fourth Wednesday, there was over one, uh, over a hundred present, many of them not professors of religion, but under the conviction of sin and seeking an interest in Christ, inquiring that they shall do to be saved. As men were blessed, 
they encourage friends and acquaintances to occupy them, accompany them. And as Jeremiah had anticipated, the meetings drew men from all classes of society and trades. Draymen could tie up their teams, slip in for a few minutes, then come out and go about their business. Shop foremen would mention the meetings to their workers. Hotels would recommend them to their guests. The Fulton Street meetings, as they were came to known, drew more and more men and more a few women as, as well until all three of the church's meeting rooms were full and the John Street Methodist Church around the corner opened to handle the overflow. Other churches began to follow suit, many opening as the noon hour with others opening before work. Soon there was so much need for places to pray that the police and fire stations opened their doors for prayer. A traveler in New York on business invited to attend such a meeting might be surprised at what he found. At one meeting, speaking to some 3,000 New Yorkers in Burton's Theater on Chamber Street, Henry Ward Beecher related this, this recent incident. This is Henry Ward Beecher. A merchant came here from Albany and called on one of our New York merchants to buy some goods at 12 o'clock. The New York merchant looked at his watch and asked to be excused for an hour. The other objected, but he was, he was in haste to get on through with his business. He replied that he must go to the prayer meeting. It was of more importance that to sell his whole stock of goods. The gentleman from Albany inquired if he, would not, if he could not pray enough at morning and night without leaving his business at noon. The merchant said he could not, and by persuasion and gentle force, he induced his friend to go to the prayer meeting with him. The man went to the meeting, became interested, and came out a converted man. He went home to Albany and immediately started those prayer meetings where there have been so blessed of God. Beecher's words had the desired effect. When the meeting's leaders offered two minutes of silent prayer for any present who had special needs, quite a number in various parts of the large hall rose and stood with heads bowed. After which another man offered to pray especially for those who wanted to come to the savior getting my book aligned here but before he could pray another young man up in the balcony added in a quiet but audible voice if you are seeking christ do not be ashamed of it it is the design of the devil to make you ashamed to allow your wants to be made known heed him not but come to the savior without delay for many the most refreshing aspect of these prayer meetings was that they were unstructured. Their sole purpose was prayer. There was no liturgy, no preaching, no song leader announcing pre-selected hymns. Jeremiah Lamphere's original rules and directions were set down on paper and became the guide for all new prayer groups that would pattern themselves after the Fulton Street meetings. The most important direction was that the meeting commenced precisely at 12 o'clock and the leader take no more than 10 minutes to op in opening it. There will be one hymn of not more than five verses, no less than three. There could be a prayer for the meeting and a portion of scripture. Then the meeting would be open for prayer while the attention of all drawn to the rules posted in a prominent place. Brethren are earnestly requested to adhere to the five-minute rule. Prayers and exhortations are not to exceed five minutes to give all an opportunity. No more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations. No controversial points discussed. A breach of these rules would be curtailed by the ringing of a bell. Written prayer requests 
could not be sent forward could be sent forward to the leader who is directed to read only one or two at a time with prayer to follow. In the event of anyone making a suggestion or a pr- proposition, the leader was to remind all that it was simply a prayer meeting and that the speaker was about was out of order and he was used to call on another brother to pray. At five minutes to one o'clock, the leader was to announce the closing hymn and request a benediction from from a clergyman if one was present. The punctuality of the strict adherence to the rules in these meetings became their hallmark. No exceptions were ever made except to permit a member to finish his prayer. Individuals with a propensity to speak or pray beyond their allotted time would, would, would resent the bell, but businessmen under pressure were grateful for it. Many commented on the powerful presence of the Spirit of God, and many were moved to tears. Sometimes someone would start a well-known hymn, but it was always spontaneous and it was not forced or programmed, nor was any particular denomination featured in any way. If a preacher did, did stand up and give a very short word, the man at the bell had a pocket watch in hand. He was not to mention his denomination or say what church he is from. He was just another man among them, sharing what was on his heart. In terms of sheer magnitude and speed of spreading, the prayer revival in New York was the most spectacular, but it was hardly the first. In a number of other cities, businessmen's prayer meetings were already underway by the time Jeremiah had started his. In fact, it was it was only later when people began to compare notes that they realized how many had spontaneously began that summer and the fall of 1857 and earlier. Clearly, this new awakening, as he began to be called, was sovereign act of God. <clears throat> Well, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? The prayer meeting spontaneously got underway in New York City, and they had to accommodate it with many other buildings. I think that's very precious. The Spirit of God is moving, and that's what's beautiful about the Spirit of God is on this earth right now desiring that all would come to the Savior and getting the bride ready to go. But I hope that has been of interest. If you join me halfway through the broadcast or whatever, reading a chapter out of the Sounding Forth the Trumpet, detailing out the New York City revival of 1857. And so with that, that's all I had for today. I thought, you know, I was as I was sitting there thinking of that, that chapter 9 of Nehemiah, I thought, wow, there were revivals recounted here in early history of the United States in the 1800s, particularly. There's another revival that I couldn't get my eyes on as well. It happened more out in the, I think it was Kentucky area as well. But, you know, revivals have a way of, of just convicting the heart. And in convicting the heart, drawing our love to the Savior, draw, and knowing the fact of finding our need is to be greater than we anticipated our dire need. So with that, that is where we are right now. I'm going to go ahead and close out here as we go out. Remember, you can always share uh, Common Thoughts of Christ, like like the video, share the video over, over on YouTube or Facebook. Certainly always interested too to hear of any comments or concerns that you can post on the on both platforms or the email mark at commonthoughtsofchrist.com. By the way, I've been updating the Common Thoughts of Christ website, so there is some new platform stuff over there right now that I've been having getting that involved, getting that put together as well. So hope that is well, but with that, 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may we find ourselves strengthened in the things that remain in this last day.